and conviction that we love this book. For some time I've desired to preach a sermon about the Bible. A sermon that would point our hearts to the scriptures in a way that would make us fall deeply in love or deeper in love than we already are. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the 119th division of Psalm, and we've been looking at how amazing God's word is, as that Psalm is talking all about the law of God. And as we've studied that, that, that chapter, our hearts have been warmed. So today we're going to do the same thing. We're going to find ourselves in Psalm 119, and we're going to look at verse 97 through 104, but I'm going to ask that you not stand uh, for the reading of God's word just yet. While I had been desiring and looking to to preach a message about God's word and just looking for the the right text to do it, by God's grace, I heard someone a couple weeks ago preach from from this specific passage in Psalm 97 through 104, and began to think, man, this is the passage I think that we want to land in in order to have our hearts warm towards the Bible. Psalm 119 is to Bible lovers what Michelangelo Sistine's Chapel is to art lovers and to what Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is to classical musicians. Psalm 119 is to hip-hop artists what Nas's Illmatic is to them, all right? To a Bible lover, this is a classical psalm, a beautiful psalm. It is written with incredible precision. It is what is called an acoustic psalm, which simply means that it it consists of 22 stanzas, each stanza consisting of eight verses, and each emphasizing in order a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is a a type of, of poetry that is on display here in this psalm. So you'll see as you look at your, at your Bibles and some of your Bibles that right before uh, every eighth verse, there is a, a word there that you probably can't pronounce, and it is the Hebrew alphabet. And if we're reading Hebrew, each verse or each stanza would start with that letter. So it is a very poetic, very rhythmatic type of passage. This psalm is absolutely amazing. We don't know who the author is. Uh, The author is anonymous. Some people say that it's Daniel. Some argue that it's Hezekiah. Some say that it's David. But what we do know is that this psalm is incredibly God-centered. In 176 verses, God is referred to. Did you hear that? Out of the 176 verses that is in this passage, God is referred to in every single verse. There are some books of the Bible where God is not, well, one book of the Bible where God is not even mentioned in, and that's the book of Esther. But yet this psalmist gets God in every verse. And you think that he, you say, yeah, he he gets God in every single verse because he's writing this in a moment of happiness or a moment of joy where everything is going right around him, but that's not the truth. As we read this psalm, we see in 63 of the 176 verses, that the psalmist is talking about suffering. And it appears that the psalmist is is possibly even running for his life. Not only is this psalm God-centered, not only is this psalm written in a time of immense suffering, but we want to see that this psalmist has a deep appreciation for the Word of God. In 173 
of the 176 verses that's presented here in this text, this psalmist refers to the law of the Lord. That's deep. To the law of the Lord. And he mentions the law of the Lord in a number of different ways. There's eight different terms he uses to talk about the law. He uses the term precepts, testimonies, way, commandments, statutes, word, and ordinances. He uses eight different words. They all have subtle nuances, subtle different interpretations, but really it's all pointing back to the same thing. For him that was the Torah, the law of Moses, as well as other sacred scriptures that was revealed at that time. So let's dive into this psalm. If you can turn to Psalm 119, verse 97 through 104, we're going to see exactly why we should love God's word. Now, as we read this, if you stand to the, for the reading of God's word, as we read this, we want to read this as new uh, covenant Christians. Again, when the psalmist is writing this, he is reflecting on the law. Uh, we are no longer under the law. Uh, he had a great appreciation for the law. He knew that he couldn't keep the law in his own strength, so he, was, he had a, a great relationship with the Lord. His relationship was by faith and not according to works. But we want to remind ourselves that as we talk about the law of the Lord, that we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And we also want to remind ourselves that our righteousness is not found in how well we obey God's word. Our righteousness is found in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. So we want to keep that in mind as I talk about this, that uh, one is not righteous because they appear to be able to keep the commandments. One's righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. 119th division of Psalm, starting at verse 97, and the authentic, sufficient, and errant, matchless, marvelous word of God reads, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let's pray. Gracious Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Father God, that you would allow this sermon to reach in areas of our hearts, Father, uh, that we can't touch, that we can't get to. Allow us, Father, by the end of today's sermon and to the end of today's service to see the incredible value of loving your word and what that means. Father, I pray that you would melt every proud and haughty heart and humble it. I pray that you would take every thought captive in this room right now in the name of Jesus. I pray that your ministering angels would counsel Satan's schemes right now, Father. The scheme of distraction, the scheme of depression, the scheme of boredom, Father God. That you would rip his agenda apart and that you would give us a heart, Father God, that cares about you, that loves you and cares about other people, Father. Rescue us from our self-centeredness. Rescue us from selfish ambitions. Drive us to our knees. Drive us to our face. 
Drive us to pure worship in this place. Drive us to honesty. Drive us to transparency. Drive us to your precious son, Jesus. Give us Jesus, Lord. Pray for that person who doesn't know you. Bring them to you. I pray for that teen who's just here out of habit. Make them love you. I pray for that couple that is just going through the motions, Father God. Break their hearts for the things that break yours. I pray for that single person who is in deep need of your presence. I pray for that elder person who, elderly person who is wondering if anyone cares. I pray, Father God, that you would speak to each and every one of us. Walk with us. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, how I love your law. From this point on, when we talk about, when we see the psalmist use different terms to talk about the law of God, we're just going to substitute that as New Covenant, New Testament Christians, and we're going to look at it as, oh, how I love this book. Oh, how I love the Bible. Because I believe that we can do that. This psalmist burps, belches out this confession in the 97th verse of this chapter, which is almost at the halfway point, a little farther along than the halfway point of this beautiful chapter that is a hymn book, a song about God's Word. And he lets us know right in the middle as he's writing this psalm that he is crazy about God's Word. He doesn't say, oh, how I like the Bible. Oh, how I find the Bible interesting. Oh, how the Bible is true. He says, oh, how I love the Bible, how I love God's word. And at the end of the sermon, that is my prayer that you would scream that as well. Let me tell you why you ought to love the Bible. Just as the psalmist came to love the law. We ought to love the Bible because the Bible is, as Brian Loritz once preached, no ordinary book. We ought to love the Bible because the Bible doesn't just, it doesn't contain the word of God, as most religions say about their holy books. The Bible is the word of God. We ought to love the Bible as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is theonoustos. A term that Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 that didn't exist before he said it. God breathed was a word that many theologians said that Paul just made up because no Greek literature to that point used it in that way. And it was only used after Paul had used it. It is God breathed. It is inspired by him. This is a teaching that says that the Bible is divinely inspired. It is written by God through men, that God used the human author's minds, vocabularies, and experiences to produce his own perfect, infallible, inerrant word. And notice what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. He says, not only is it God-breathed, is it inspired by God used uh, as, as God used men with their own vocabularies uh, in their own world to write it, but he says all Scripture, all Scripture. He says every single verse 
31,173 verses is inspired by God. Which means that it's all true and it all is to be interpreted with common sense as well as with a biblical understanding. We don't get to pick and choose what part of the book we love. It's all good. Paul goes on and says in that same verse, it's all profitable. It all is used by God to impact and transform our lives. And it is his word, every story, whether we understand, agree with it or not. If we don't believe that all scripture is God breathed, if we don't believe that it's all profitable, then we don't love God's word. We will find ourselves like Thomas Jefferson, sitting with a Bible open, with a razor, cutting out the parts that he can't believe. And before we know it, rather than standing under the word of God, we are standing against the word of God. It's all God-breathed. It's all profitable. I love this book because it's no ordinary book. Only God can put together a book, as Augustine said, that is shallow enough that a child cannot drown in it, yet deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. Only God can compile a book that is written by fishermen and kings, by farmers and doctors, by the rich and the poor, by prophets and former thugs and tax collectors. Only God can write a book that is written in three different languages over a 1,500 year span, on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Only God can make a library of books into one book that never contradicts itself. For the Bible, even though it's 66 separate books, comes together as one. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, all pointing to one person, Jesus. Only God can do that. Only God can make a book that conceals Jesus for generations and then reveals him in the New Testament. Some people try to pin the Old Testament versus the New Testament and make it seem like it's two different religions, but what they don't understand is that the New Testament authors, they love the Old Testament. They quoted the Old Testament explicitly in the New Testament over 300 times, and there's over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. The New Testament is all about Jesus and how he fulfilled the law and how he loved the book. In fact, in Luke chapter 24 through 27, after Jesus is resurrected from the grave, we see that the Bible says that he sat with the disciples and he walked with the disciples on the Emmaus road and he opened the scriptures to them explaining how everything in the Old Testament related to him. This is no ordinary book. The psalmist goes on and he says in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. It is my meditation all day. The word or term meditation literally means to, to reflect, to think deeply about or to pray on something. This psalmist after declaring that he is in love with God's word, uh, ends up 
confessing that love for God's word looks a specific way. It, it, it looks like us not just talking about it, but us loving it enough to reflect deeply on it. Loving it enough to have it with us all day, to meditate on it. Michael Haken, in his book, The God Who Draws Near, quoting the Puritan Thomas Watson, said, Meditation is allowing the scriptures to mull over in your mind. Haken goes on to say that the telos, or goal of meditation, is to warm the heart and to strip, strengthen the will. If we do not meditate on scriptures, our hearts will become cold and our wills will collapse. The psalmist believed that and he knew it and it was, the Bible was so fresh and so good to him. You just, you just sense as you're reading the psalm that it's not boring. It just compels him and it's just overtaking him so much that every single verse he's trying to figure out, how can I mention God and how can I mention God's law? It is just so good. And then sometimes at some points in the psalm you can tell that his heart is just cold towards the word and he just begs God. He's like, God, give me a heart for your word. Help me to love it. It consumed him. It controlled him. It shaped him. It broke him. It put him back together. Meditation is a picture of a cow eating grass. And a cow begins to chew that grass. And he eats that grass and he, it goes into his stomach. And then he regurgitates it and he chews on it some more. The psalmist was saying that he wouldn't just let a verse go. He couldn't just let a thought go. He would chew on it throughout the day. And then when he thought that it settled in him, he would bring it back up because God would give him more revelation about it because he knew that this was no ordinary book. He loved God's word. Like Joshua and Joshua 1.8 and like David in, in, in Psalm 1 and 2, the psalmist's love for God's word shows up in his commitment to intentionally reflect on God's word throughout the, 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 the day. And he gives us in his passage three reasons why we should love God's word. Starting at verse 98, we see the first reason. The first reason that we should love God's word is that the Bible makes one wise. The Bible makes one wise. Look at what the text says. Verse 98, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. So the first thing that the psalmist says is that the Bible, the the word of God, makes him wiser than his enemies. God's wisdom always, always surpasses the world's wisdom. And he is reflecting on how the word of God has shaped him and kept him. And he's looking at his enemies' lives who are those who don't love God. And he's saying, wow, I'm wiser than them. I'm wiser than them. The decisions that we make as we follow the Bible, it's not going to be popular with the world. And it's not going to be the way that the world thinks and the way that the world moves. But as we look at the span of our lives and as we look over our lives, as we have cherish the Bible, we'll see that God has given us wisdom, wisdom, the ability to apply knowledge, wisdom, the ability to make the right decision at the right time 
for the right reason. Wisdom, a gift from God, who is the God of all wisdom. So he looks at his enemies and he says, wow, I'm wiser than my enemies. You know, Jesus was committed to God's word. And Jesus was wiser than his enemies. The Bible talks about throughout the the Gospels we read about how Jesus constantly confound the the wisdom of the Pharisees. We see the Pharisees constantly trying to trick Jesus and trying to catch Jesus up in his words and, and ask some questions to make him look foolish. But every time the Pharisees came to him, every time his enemies tried to trap him, Jesus came with a word that was so wise that was so wise that they would just go away, scratching their head. Or sometimes it'll make them angry because he'll tell them a story. And at the end of the story, they'll realize, hey, wait a minute, he's talking about us. I love how in one story, the Pharisees bring up the word of God, bring up David, and they're boasting about David. And then Jesus brings up David, and he shows them something that they've never seen before in Scripture, that David in a song, was actually calling someone else Lord, which was him. (laughs) And the Bible says that they looked and they started thinking about it, and they determined from that day forward to never try to trap him again. Jesus was wiser than his enemies. But the Pharisees wasn't his biggest enemies. They weren't his deepest enemies. The, The biggest enemy that Jesus had was Satan. And we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, When Jesus gets away for 40 days to fast, as his ministry is at its beginning, that Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts Jesus three times. And each temptation is an attempt to get Jesus to sin against God, to get Jesus to bow down and worship Satan in idolatry, to get Jesus to eat out of lust and break his fast, to get Jesus to test God, by jumping off of a high place to, to see that, to, so that the angels can come catch him. Satan was using the word of God in the wrong way to trap Jesus. But the Bible says that three straight times Jesus says, it is written. And when Satan tried to tempt Jesus, he stood on the Bible, and three straight times he quoted scriptures from Deuteronomy. Because he was wiser than his enemy. See, Jesus was better than Adam because Adam was in a garden. And when Adam was supposed to stand on God's word, he didn't. And he failed. But Jesus is the second and the greatest, the greater Adam. As here in a wilderness, he succeeds. Not only is Jesus greater than Adam, but Jesus is greater than the children of Israel. As they failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. As they refused to stand on God's word, Jesus stood on God's word because he knew that this was not an ordinary book. See, your enemies, they're taking shortcuts. They're living a life that says, live your best life now. They're politicking at work in order to get ahead. They may be even doing stuff unbecoming at work in order to get ahead. But when you believe in the Bible, you don't have to shuck and drive and politic and 
You, you believe that God is the one who exalts, and he's the one who pulls down. He's the one who promotes. And ultimately, at the end, it's going to work out better for you for being faithful than for your enemies. He says this book makes him wiser than his enemies, but not just his enemies. Look at what he says in the next verse, in the next, in the next phrase, for it is ever with me. So he's saying that the book is ever with him. In other words, that he has stored up the book in his heart. Back then, they didn't have little Bibles that they just walked around with, right? We got all kind of size Bibles, big Bibles. Some of us got big Bibles, right? Study Bibles. Our study Bible is a study Bible. It's like study Bibles within study Bibles. And it's big. And we don't, we don't read it, but we like how big it is. Because we want people to think we're deep, right? <laughs> But the psalmist, he wasn't walking around with a big study Bible that had a study Bible. He said he was wiser than his enemies because he stored it in his heart. It was always with him. So that when his enemies tried to trap him, when they tried to tap on his last nerve or set him up, he had scripture coming to memory, reminding him to be kind, reminding him to be gentle, reminding him to be quiet, slow to speak, and quick to listen. said, I'm wiser than my enemies. But number two, look at what he says. Verse 99, uh, he says that he's also wiser than his teachers. For I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies, again, are my meditation. So he's saying I have more understanding than my teachers because, again, God's word is in me. It's not just something that's on a shelf in my home that I pick up for Sunday morning worship. It's a part of me. Now, what does he mean that I have more understanding of my teachers? This phrase can come off to be arrogant, right? You're saying that you're better than your teachers, that you're smarter than your teachers? Again, what he's doing is he's saying those teachers who don't love God's word, those teachers who haven't committed to the way of God, even though they teach me, they are not wiser than me. Because I am applying God's word to my life. You may be a high school teacher, a high school student, and your teacher may be a genius when it comes to physics or math or geography or geometry, whatever it is. But even as a high school teacher, if, as a high school student, if you love God's word, the Bible says that you are wiser, you are better off than your non-believing teacher. Because you love it, you love it enough to cherish it. Wow. He says, I have more understanding of my teachers. Life makes more sense to me than it does to those who are teaching. But look at what he goes on to say. Not only do I have more wisdom than my enemies, not only do I have more wisdom than my teachers. Verse 100, he says, I have more wisdom than the aged. Ooh. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. There's a big misconception that says that with age comes wisdom. 
Now, with age should come wisdom. And I praise God for those who are aged here at Forest Baptist Church who exude the wisdom of God and who have the wisdom of God because they've allowed God's word to shape the way they think and live. But the fact of the matter is, is you can be a seasoned old fool. Age, experience is not the best teacher. Some people say, oh, experience is the best teacher. But they've been through the same trial for 25 years, and they have failed every time. Or it was the 26th time that they finally succeeded. No, the person who hears God's word, who runs to Jesus and says, Jesus, help me to believe it and to live your word, who depends on the Holy Spirit to strengthen them into obedience, and the person who is seeking by faith to obey God, that is the wise person. That could be a 12-year-old. Jesus was in a temple. The Bible says at 12 years old, talking to the synagogue leaders, They were amazed at what he knew. Luke goes on to tell us that he continued to grow in wisdom and knowledge because he knew that God's word was God's word. And he committed at a young age to to his word. So he had the age, those who should be teaching him, they were learning from him. And that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to learn from someone that's younger than you. And someone who is committed to God's word. He said, I understand more than the age for I've kept your precepts. So look how he connects, connects that. He says, I understand more, not because I know more. Wisdom is not necessarily based on how much you know. It's how much you apply. You can know the whole Bible and apply none of it, and you're a fool. But if what you do know you're seeking to apply, you can be considered wise. So we love the Bible because it makes one wise. It makes one wiser than his enemies. It makes one wiser than his teachers. It makes one wiser than the aged. But second, we can love the Bible because the Bible washes us. It washes us. Look at verse 101. He says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. He continues in verse 102. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every evil way. In three verses, the psalmist mentions God's word, and he talks about how as a result of God's word, he now hates evil. And that's how we know if we love God's word. Love of God's word shows up, not by our ability necessarily to keep it, because we're all going to fall and fall short, but whether or not we hate the evil we do. 
whether or not we are growing to be repulsed at the things that repulse God, whether or not we are growing to be turned off by the things that turn off God, is your heart growing in sensitivity to sin? When you look back over your life, over the last few years, can you see your taste becoming more sensitive? You know, there was this television show like five years ago I just loved. And this is for me. It shows up differently for all of us. But I loved it. But it was a little on the violent side. All right? <laughs> and this is just one of many examples. But I'm just amazed that now, in order to watch that same television show, I, really, I have to be really tired, and nothing has to be on TV. Because the violence and the plot and the evil that happens on that show just breaks my heart. And that is a gift from God. Because Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What I believe that God is doing is he's doing what he's doing in every single one of our lives. If we are believers, he is progressively sanctifying us. He is making us to look more and more like Jesus. And if we are loving his word and meditating on his word, that means that we are beginning to hate the things that the world promotes and the things that we once saw as entertainment. Anybody else with me? Anybody else used to be able to watch slasher films? And like, oh, man, I can't wait to see this slasher film. And then at some point you went, and you was like, man, this is scary, but this is demonic. Yo, why is her head turning all these different ways? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, man, I used to think this was entertaining. Or you're watching something, and all of a sudden you have a deeper sensitivity to the words that's being used. Like, you're like, man, it's a lot of curse words in this movie. I remember I used to watch this, and that didn't bother me at all. Or, man, now you're checking to see if nudity is in the movie, because if nudity is in the movie, you don't want to see it? Oh, man, some people looking at me like, yo, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's the choice I want to see. But God's word begins to wash us. It is a washcloth. That's why Paul told the church at uh, Ephesus, the men at Ephesus, to wash your wife with the word of God's word. It cleanses us as we believe it and accept it and believe in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It makes us look less like ourselves in the world and more like Jesus. And not in a proud, indignant, I'm looking down at you because you're not sensitive to this, but in a humble way. In a humble way. I'm just amazed by the psalmist's humility again. Because look at verse 102. He says, I do not turn aside from your rules. So he's, he's, he's saying, I've made a declaration that I'm not turning from your way. But look what he says, for you have taught me. He's saying, I'm not this way, and I don't love your word because of my own doing. I love it because you taught me. You broke me. You chased me. You pursued me. You gave me these passions. 
God's Word can do that. Look throughout history, and you see the testimonies of people who were once dark, who came to know Jesus and who began to walk in the light, and you see how their lives were radically transformed from Augustine to Luther to many celebrities who are faithfully and truly walking under God's Word. But you don't have to look to history. You can look, hopefully, to yourself. Look at myself and say, God's word has washed me, man. God, you know, we can sit there dignified like we, you know, but, but God's word works. I don't even, ha- I don't have to go back 10 years. I don't have to go back five years. I don't have to go back a year. I can go back months. And look at how God's word has impacted me. Love this word. Love his Bible because it's no ordinary book. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 9. In fact, turn there. Take a page. There's a direct correlation between personal purity and our intake of God's word. All of us are struggling with some type of impurity. Whether or not we're winning that struggle has everything to do with whether or not we love God's word. Verse 9, how does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding his way according to God's word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See that correlation? It says, I've memorized your word so that I won't sin against you. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what we quoted earlier, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God's word trains us. That's why Paul said, you know, bodily exercise is of some profit, eh, little profit. But godliness <laughs> is really the great profit. That's why I'm so out of shape. I'm like, yo, this is. He says, no, it is better to train yourself in God's word towards godliness to than to be the most fit person, physically fit person you can be. Because at the end of the day, without holiness, no one shall see God. And we know that that's an alien holiness, but at the same time, that is practical holiness. Because no one who intentionally and habitually, flagrantly sins against God for their life, throughout their life, was ever set aside by God to begin with. And those who have been set aside by God are those who have been amazed by God's grace. And because they're amazed by God's grace, they don't want to take the sacrifice of Jesus lightly. So they're pursuing him. And how do we pursue Jesus? We pursue Jesus by pursuing his word because Jesus is his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus is the manifestation of God's word. And he loves it so much because it's so connected to him. That's why he said, not one iota, not one dot 
will go unfulfilled in me. In me. So we see that the Bible washes us, but throughout the scriptures we, we also read other analogies of God's word. It's not just a, a wash call. We see analogies that tell us that God's word is a weapon. It's a weapon. Ephesians 6, 4 calls it the sword of the spirit. See, Jesus in that wilderness, in that desert, he was fighting off Satan with his sword. We are in spiritual warfare. And your intellect, your personal ability, your personal strengths will not defeat Satan, only God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a weapon. But it's not just meant to be used on Satan. It's meant to be used on us. For he says, it pierces to the division of the soul and spirit, to joints and to, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of our hearts. So we go to God's word not just to fight off Satan, but to fight off ourselves. Because our hearts are prone to wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and heal it. Heal it. All right. Anyway. All right. I'm going to have to sing something y'all know. Y'all supposed to jump in. See, we was going to close the sermon right then, but now I got to keep going. Got to find another closing. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Not only is it a weapon, but it's a mirror. James chapter 2 says it shows us ourself. Man, when you get in God's word and you're loving it and you're taking time to study it, it's just showing you all your spiritual boogers and blunders. And it's a double-edged sword. It convicts going in, but it heals coming out. It's getting to spots in your heart that you're like, man, I didn't even know that was there. And then just as you're falling to guilt and condemnation, you remember Jesus. <laughs> that there is now no condemnation in him. Jeremiah said it's a fire that purifies and a hammer that breaks us. Jeremiah 23 and 9. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 106, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It washes us. It reveals the way of God. Lastly, the Bible tastes wonderful. Look at what the psalmist says. He said the Bible tastes wonderful. Goes on to say in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Wow. He says, God's word is sweet. And I believe what he's doing here is he's trying to think of the sweetest thing he can think of. And he thinks of honey. And he's not thinking of honey that's been tampered with or that's been dulled down. He's thinking of pure honey. Pure honey, man. You taste some pure honey, it, it lights you on fire. Woof. Man, it's sweet. What is he saying? He's saying that the word of God is to be experienced. 
Some of us, we don't read the Word of God because we think it's boring. Man, the Word of God is an adventure story. It's the greatest adventure story. It tells us why we are the way we are. It tells us what's going to happen if we stay the way we are. It tells us that we can't deliver ourselves from who we are. It tells us that we need Jesus, and Jesus is the only one who can help us. And he helps us by forgiving us and by empowering us. I mean, how can, how can we think this is boring? What do you want? You want a story of romance? It's in the book. You want a story of drama? It's in the book. You want to see some drama queens? Read about Jezebel or Athelia. You want to see how God can change people? Read about how Jesus changed prostitutes and thieves. You want to read about terrorism? Read about how he came alongside a zealot who was a terrorist in his day and changed him and made him humble. What what do you want to read about? You like fighting? You want to read about some fighting? Turn to the Old Testament. Go through the book of Judges. You want some graphic scenes? Go to the book of Judges and read about a man who put his sword in another man's stomach and his bowels came out. They're like, what? Bible isn't boring. We had a, a Wednesday night speaker who was a, a Muslim, a former Muslim uh, from a place that's near Russia who was converted and changed by God, who learned about Jesus and who started reading the Bible at night at an orphanage in a bathroom cell because if he was caught, he could be beat and persecuted. He learned and loved the Bible there. He said, he said the Bible isn't boring. He said sports is boring. TV is boring. That's what the psalmist is saying. Y'all like, TV is not boring. (laughs) Compared to God's word, it is. When we dive into it and we understand that this is no ordinary book, this is a book about Jesus. This is a book about Jesus. And it tastes good. The Bible is true soul food. Some of us, we're going to leave here today and we're going to go get some soul food. No, the Bible is soul food. Job says in Job 23 and 12, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job agreed with the psalmist. Jeremiah agreed with the psalmist. He says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became the joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Your words were found and I ate them. They became the joy and the delight of my heart. They became. So if you're sitting here today, you're like, that's just not me. I just, I like it. It's cool. I like it when someone else preaches it, but I don't love it. Your heart can love it. And it's a process. Beg Jesus. Say, Jesus, help me to love your word because I know when I love your word, I love you. I once asked a a teenager that question. I said, can you not like the Bible and love Jesus? He said, yeah, I think so. I said, no, you can't. Jesus is the Bible. He's revealed in the Bible. Oh, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. Do you love the Lord? If you never want to learn about him and see him, Or if the only time we want to learn about him and see him is on our terms, when it's comfortable and convenient, 
Now, when you love somebody, you make sacrifices for them. Come on now. 12 o'clock at night, got to be at work at 6. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. I said I love you first last time. I love you more. No, I love you more. Let's play truth or dare. I dare you to run outside and just scream that you love me. Y'all never did nothing like that? Okay. That's just, well, that was just us. I'm joking. Partially. When you love somebody, man, you want to talk to them. You want to hear from them. You want to know what's on their mind. You want to say, you, you, you want to woo them. You want to be wooed by them. Baby, I wish I was a tear in your eye so that I can be born in your eye, live on your cheek, and die on your lip. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You want to experience them. So how, what's the application of the day? simple. Get, get in the Word. Get in the Word and pray. Say, God, help me to love your Word. Now, I realize that the reason that some of us, we don't go to God's word is because we just have a hard time understanding it. And maybe you say it just doesn't make sense. But the good news is, is that as you persevere to read God's word, it will make more sense. And as you get a plan together, if you are a born-again believer, that you will begin to understand it. That's a promise, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But I want to give you a quick plan, a place that you can start. You're saying, I want to experience God through his word. I want to take out time. I want to give you a quick plan that I think will help you to do this. Now, you can go on the Internet and you can Google all different types of methods, but this is just one way. Uh, this is a way that I heard a long time ago. I don't remember the gentleman who shared it, but it was, it was just talking about how we can take a, a journey in God's word every day. Quick steps. I want you to think of going on a, a road trip for this journey. Number one, you start off by filling up. If you're going to go on a road trip, the first thing you do is you fill up your car. You put gas in it, right? So as we wake up in the morning and carve out time to get in God's Word, the first thing we want to do is fill up with prayer. Fill up with prayer. A lot of times we don't get out of God's word where we can because we go to it arrogantly, believing that we can understand it without the Holy Spirit and without God's help. Fill up. Pray. Beg God, help me. Help me to experience you in the word today. Number two, pick a destination. You're going on a road trip. You ought to know where you're headed and where you're going. So you want to pick a destination. Now, there's many different methods and different ways and different places to start. Um, maybe for, for some of you that's having a plan, maybe you're a plan type of person and you need a Bible reading plan, you can easily get a Bible reading plan. You can get a, a Bible that goes through, you can go through the Bible in a year, you can go on the Internet. They have all types of plans. You can just look at them and you can just decide. So maybe every morning you're just going to pick up where you left off. Or maybe you're just going to, maybe you can just decide to go through a book. So let's say we pick the book of John. 
And you say, you know what, I'm going to go through the book of John. So each morning I'm going to read a chapter of John and spend some time in it. Okay? So you pick your destination. You know where you're going. Or maybe that's a specific issue, a specific study you want to study. You can do some research and you can find that. But you, you have to know where you're going. So you decide what you're going to read that day. And then after that, you drive slow. You drive slow. In other words, you just read that chapter slowly. Take your time to read it slowly. Don't just go through it super fast. Read it slow. We don't want to get a ticket. Fourth, on this road trip, you get out and you enjoy the scene. Get out and enjoy the scene. When it's a road trip and, and you're excited about it, you want to take your time. Maybe you're on the way to your, your final destination. You just want to enjoy the scene. So you get out and you walk around. And what does that mean? That means you start asking the text some questions. And you just enjoy what you've read. In your bulletin, we've given you a list of questions that you can ask every text. Okay? This is something that our youth ministry is going through and our youth pastor has been going through with our youth. And this method is called the sweetest method. And it just helps you to ask the text some questions. So here's an example, and you have it in your, in your uh, handout. What shines in this passage? What impacts me most or draws my attention? What did I learn or what stood out to me in a new way? That's one, one question. And maybe that's going to be the only question for that morning. And the next day, you're going to come back to that same question. You're going to ask the next text, the next question, the same text, the, the next question. But you want to enjoy it. Ask the text some questions. Begin to think about it. After you enjoy the scene, you want to take out your camera and you want to take a picture. The fifth step, take a picture. Take a picture. And that's what we call memorizing and meditating on God's word. So you find in the text, maybe you're going through Psalm 119 and you see that, I love the law, right? For it is my meditation all day. That means that that's going to be your verse for that day or your verse for that week. Maybe you're going to write it down on a note card. You're going to write it a hundred times so that you can memorize it. Maybe you're going to post it on your fridge or post it on your computer at work. But you're going to remind yourself of that verse. And you're going to begin to think about that verse in a number of different ways. He says, I love your law. He didn't say they. I. He didn't say like. Love. He didn't say a law. He says your law. Now, some of us were like, memorize. I can, I can barely remember someone's phone number. We can memorize something if we want to. On Wednesday, I said, if, uh, talking to the Wednesday group, if, if I challenged you and said, I will give you $1,000 for every verse you memorize over the next week, how many verses would you put to memory? Somebody said, the whole Bible. 31,000, right? But here's the thing. The reason you say that is because you think that money is of more importance than hiding God's word. You, you think that money's going to fix your problems or relieve your stress. We think that, right? 
We think that the riches and wealth is, the wealth of this world is what's going to satisfy us. But that's not what satisfies us. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 14, says this, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much in all of the riches of the world. He understood that true wealth and true riches was knowing God's word. Because you can do more with God's word than you can with a million dollars. See, money may fix things that's going on outside of you, but it'll never fix what's going on in your chest. And it is what's going on in your chest that's going to keep you lusting after more and more and hurting other people. But if we don't hide God's word in our hearts, we can't defend ourselves against the enemy, and we can't defend ourselves against discontentment, and we can't defend ourselves against our own wicked desires. So take a picture, memorize, and meditate on God's word. Know it by heart. Finally, Send a postcard home. Send a postcard home. After we take a picture, uh, and you see a beautiful scene, you take a picture and you maybe make it into a to- co- uh, postcard and you send it, send it to someone. And what this is, is, is that means you want to you pray. You want to pray about what you just experienced. You start with prayer and you end with prayer. Send it back home. Send it to heaven. Say, Lord, today you've convicted my heart in these ways. You've shown me that I am like Mary rather than Martha. I'm always busy doing and not busy learning. Help me, Father God, to enjoy your presence, to enjoy your son Jesus. But look, now you don't just pray that for yourself. You can pray that for everyone. You can pray that for your pastor. You can pray that for your deacons. You can pray that for your mother. You can pray that for your father. You can pray that for your husband. You can pray that for your best friend. You pray that for your Sunday school teacher. So now your prayers are being enriched. If we are going to be a church that makes a difference in Newburgh and that makes a difference in the world, it is because we are in love with God's word. More than natural food. And I know it's tough. It's tough sometimes. Sometimes, man, and I get out the bed or I'm going throughout my day and just put it off as long as I can some mornings. Because I know it's going to be hard work and it's going to be hard work. No, I got some issues going on in there and I don't feel like being convicted. But you know what? That's when I pray. I say, Lord, help me to love your word. If my heart stays in this condition, I'm going to come down to this office and I'm going to get on Sister Frances' nerves. I'm going to be mean to my wife. I'm going to be lusting after things that I shouldn't. I'm going to be discontent. And most importantly, I'm going to be away from Jesus. So don't allow your heart to become cold. Beg God. When my wife and I were dating, I've shared this before. We uh, were long distance, especially when I first came down here uh, to 
Louisville. Had a plan to hurry up, finish seminary, and leave as quick as I could to move on to what I thought the Lord was calling me to do. And that first few semesters, I took a load of classes. I was working 35, 40 hours a week. I was here at the church. Um, and, and things just got tight sometimes. So what we started doing is, me and my wife, we just started writing each other love letters. And uh, that, was, that was really our primary way of communicating, deep things. So we had a whole system together. If you ask a question in a letter, we couldn't answer it in person. We had to write it down. And after the person responded in the letter, uh, then we could talk about it on the phone. And it was just a great way to get to know each other, a great way to make each other think deeply about things we maybe wouldn't have talked about. But I'm telling you, every time I got a letter in the mail, a love letter, my world stopped. And I remember one time being at work and running late. I stopped at the mailbox. The letter came earlier than I thought it should. I'm driving to work, reading the letter. I get to, to work, clock in a little early. I go in the bathroom. I'm in the stall reading the letter. Come out. I'm working halfway through the day. I'm like, wait a minute, did she say this or did she say that? Pulling it back out, reading the letter. Why? Because I knew that my wife and I were about to enter into a covenant relationship and that she had a deep love for me and that I had a deep love for her. God has written you a love letter. We are in a covenant relationship with him that is sealed by the blood of Jesus. And when we take time to read and understand and study his word, we experience his love in a fresh way. And we'll find ourselves reading the word at work, reading it in between commercials, reading it in the bathroom, saying, Lord, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did that verse say this? Or did that verse say that? Was that a therefore or was that a for? Was that a as or was that a but? Because you want to know what he said to you. I just want to encourage you to love this book because it is no ordinary book. In it, you'll find wisdom. In it, you'll be watched. In it you will see just how much he loves you, how wonderful it takes, and it will consume you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to, to trust your word, to see your word, and to see Jesus in your word, because it is in your word that your love for us is displayed as we learn about your cross. In New Testament, we learn about how much you loved us. You loved us enough to die in our place in order that we could commune with you and know you. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we leave, that we won't just take this sermon and, and, and throw it in the back of our minds, but that, Lord, that we would treasure it, that we would take out time each day to spend a, a little time with you, Lord. Even when we're tired, Father God, that we'll press past the tiredness and, and believe that you can give us strength as we read. In Jesus' name, amen.